Almighty Father, uh, as we um, come to this text, and uh, as we try to read the text and reflect on it um, deeply, uh, we don't want to just talk about a really old book. Uh, we we, we want to talk to you. Better, we want to listen to you. And um, which is a, which is, every time I say that, I'm, I'm struck with how audacious that is. And yet we ask, will you speak? Will you now do whatever is necessary in each one of our hearts so that we hear you accurately, clearly, uh, but in a way that transforms, not in a way that merely informs? And that's your work. So please do it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. And it's useful if you would turn back in your service sheets to uh, pages 6 and 7. Um, this is the, uh, the last portion of Proverbs that we're going to read together um, uh, for, for, this, uh, for, for this series. So we're wrapping up today uh, the book of, uh, our, this portion of the book of Proverbs. And uh, one of the things that we've been saying uh, the entirety of our time in Proverbs uh, over the last couple months is that Proverbs wants to drive us to pursue wisdom. And one of the ways we've said that is that uh, Proverbs asks us to grow up before we grow old. We've said that almost every single week. Um, as we end this sermon series, however, I'm aware that there's a little bit of a danger in the way uh, we've phrased that and the way I've phrased that. We want to grow up before we grow old. That's true. I think that's an accurate uh, description of some of what Proverbs wants to accomplish. But here's the danger in putting it that way. The danger is that it can sound just a little bit optional. You know, um, uh, when it comes to maturity, uh, generally, I'm, I would imagine that most of us, if we took a poll, is maturity a good thing or a bad thing? Most of us would say, oh, it's a good thing. But most of us would probably, you can tell me later if you think I'm right, probably not feel it as something that is urgent. Well, we all know people, some of us are people, who just have never really grown up, right? Um, um, you can ask somebody else that like, you live with to um, ask them whether or not you're one of these people who's a little bit like Peter Pan. You know, you, you live your whole life, you never really grow up. And, and most of us, when we know people who don't, never really mature, kind of hit a point uh, of a, a level of maturity and then level off and never really go beyond that, we sort of look at them. Usually they're a little irritating, right? And we look at them and we kind of go, oh dear, oh, oh dear. We roll our eyes just a little bit, we shrug it off, and we go on. It doesn't usually feel urgent. Now, if you live with this person, oftentimes it is more urgent for, for you. But, um, but, but when we think of it, at least from a distance, it doesn't feel very urgent. And that's the problem. Because for Proverbs, wisdom is urgent. Today in the text, uh, there are two houses, and there are two meals, and they represent two different ways to live. And it's not just that wisdom is a nice to, nice to have, not a have to have. It is that uh, one path, the path of wisdom, leads to life. Life that never ends. And on the other hand, folly. The path of folly leads to death. And death that never ends. And therefore, here's the point. As we close our series, here's the thing we need to take away. 
Desire wisdom like you desire life. Because that's what it'll give you. And on the other hand, fear folly like you fear death. Because that's what it'll give you. That's what I want to show you today. Um, and kind of two headings. We don't really need headings, but two headings, because why not? The household of wisdom is what we're going to look at first. And then secondly, the feast of wisdom that's in that house. First of all, the household of wisdom. Let me show you. Look at verse 1. Now, wisdom here is personified as a, a woman who has built a house. Verse 1, wisdom has built her house. She has hewn out her seven pillars. And she's slaughtered her beasts, and she's mixed her wine. And she has also set her table. She has sent out her young women to call from the highest places of the town. Whoever is simple, let them turn in here. Now, pause there and imagine the scene. Um, and, and in order to imagine the scene adequately, I want you to imagine your favorite uh, block in New York City, uh, whatever that is. I'm imagining a, um, a, a brownstone, a block full of brownstone with trees. And uh, you're walking through that uh, street, and you come across um, a place where on either side of the street there are two houses, two houses that look very similar. Perhaps they're brownstones. If you like a different kind of house, then you can insert the, your favorite house here. Um, but you, you notice these two houses, they're facing each other on either side of the street, and both of them, there are women outside who are inviting us in. One house is the house of wisdom, and she's inviting us in, and the other house is the house of folly, and she's a character who is inviting us in as well. Now, in your imagination, turn and go into whichever house you're designating as wisdom's house. And imagine walking into this house. And as you walk into the house, it, you, you are struck with its beauty. Um, uh, the, I don't know, the lighting is fantastic, the decor is right, um, but the best thing about it is the, the fragrance, the smell. Because you smell food, yummy, yummy food. And, uh, and, and then you look out, and there's a table right there. And maybe this house is a little bit like a, it's been converted in, into a cafe or something like that. And, and you look at the feast. There's a table with a feast, and you see the best wine, whatever your favorite wine is, and the best meal that you can imagine. It's set out there. And then Wisdom, who's the host, she looks at you, and she says, all this is for you. It's all prepared for you. Sit, eat, enjoy. Now... It's a nice scene, eh? What does it mean? Well, in order to grasp what's happening here in chapter 9, you need to reach back into chapter 8, which we've talked about for the last few weeks. And in chapter 8, if you were here, you'll remember that uh, wisdom is also personified as a woman who is giving a speech. She's talking. And in her speech, she makes just remarkable claims, just audacious claims. She says, summarizing, in effect... She says, think about all the, uh, the best things in the world. For instance, think about the beauty of nature, she says to us in chapter 8. She says, are you compelled by the beauty of, of a glorious mountain or a, or a profound sea or whatever it might be? Are you compelled by those things? Well, she says, I was there when they were created. And I, I, I was part of, I, I was involved in the architecture of the beauty of nature. Or, she changes the image, she says, think about political power and influence. Are you uh, compelled by 
uh, political power, good leadership, perhaps. Maybe you're compelled by good leadership. She says, well, think about your, the greatest leader you're aware of. She says, I'm the one behind all the good decisions that your favorite leader has taken. She says, well, your favorite leader, whenever he or she made a great decision, I was there whispering in her ear. Or changing the image again, she says, think about joy and delight and pleasure. Everybody wants that. Well, wisdom says, I stand before the presence of God, and there before the presence of God, I experience constantly unbounded and unrestrained pleasure. And my joy is so intense that it makes your highest pleasure seem like a, a 50-cent gumdrop, if those still exist. Do those still exist? I, I think they do. do the machines where you turn the thing. Anyways. Now, she's making big claims, right? And according to Proverbs, part of the point is that if you took all that is desirable in this world and you, if you could distill it down to its core, to its essence, then you would have something very similar to what Proverbs calls wisdom. Now, keep that in mind and go back to wisdom's house because here it is. The feast is laid out in front of you and wisdom says to you, verse 5, she says, come and eat my bread and drink of the wine that I have mixed Leave your simple ways and live and walk in the way of insight. What, she, what is she saying? She's saying, I am distilled goodness, truth, and beauty, and I want to share all that I am with you. Come and eat and eat free of charge. Which doesn't immediately strike you as a bad deal. It may be an audacious one, but it's a pretty good deal, isn't it? Okay, well... Now, in your imagination, go back to the scene. Uh, don't sit down at Wisdom's table. Instead, turn around, walk out the door, and uh, walk back to the street in your imagination and cross the street and go to the other house. From the, other, from the outside, it looks very, very similar. You know, it's the same kind of model of brownstone. And once again, there's a woman outside saying, come in and eat. And so you do. You walk in. And as you walk in, it sort of looks like the house that you were just in. Um, but the decorations are a little haphazard, a little bit maybe like it's trying too hard. Like there's a difference between, you know, being cool and desperately trying, right? It's just trying a little too hard. And then you also notice the smell. But it, it, you can't quite put your, your finger on it, but it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a strong smell. You can't figure out if it's a good smell or if it's a bad smell. But then there's part of you that thinks this may be a very strong smell like incense or something like that that is trying to cover something else up. And then you look at the table. And once again, there's a meal there, but it's just dry bread and water. But as soon as uh, the hostess sees that you are looking at the meal, she swoops in and she says, verse 17, stolen water is sweet and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. And as you listen to her, and then particularly as you think about the meal and the feast you've just come from, you put it together and you realize that she's, she's selling something to you. She's, she's got a bad product, but she's a good salesperson. Uh, and because she has got a bad product, you realize that she's, she's just putting a spin on it. She's marketing to you. And you're good at figuring that out, particularly because you've just seen the real thing. 
And then, as your suspicion rises, what's going on here? Then you look around the room and you realize you're not in a cafe and you're not in a house. Instead, you realize to your shock that you're in a morgue. And that the smell that's been badly covered up by the incense is the smell of death. Verse 13. The woman folly is loud, and she's seductive. She knows nothing. She sits at the door of her house, and she takes a seat on the highest places of the town, calling to those who pass by, who are going straight on their way. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. And to him who lacks sense, she says, stolen water is sweet, and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. But he does not know that the dead are there and that her guests are in the depths of shale. Shale, uh, Old Testament word for the place of the dead, Hades. Okay, my point is, desire wisdom like you desire life because that's what it gives you. On the other hand, fear folly like you fear death because that's what it gives you. Now, let's get a little bit more practical, okay? Because how do you know which house you're in? Right, because the houses look kind of similar. How do you know if you're in the house of folly or if you're in the house of wisdom? Well, take a look at verse 7. It gives us a clue. Who, whoever uh, corrects a scoffer gets himself abuse, and he who reproves a wicked man incur, uh, incurs injury. Do not reprove a scoffer. He'll hate you. Reprove a wise man, and he'll love you. Give instruction to a wise man, and he will be wiser still. Teach a righteous man and he will increase in learning. Uh, here's the point. According to Proverbs, the sign that you are wise or the sign that you are in wisdom's house is not that you think you know everything. A wise person isn't somebody who looks at themselves and says, looks around at the competition and kind of says, well, I'm smarter than average. I'm ahead of the bell curve. Um, I'm going to coast. It's more the opposite. The sign that you're in the house of wisdom is that you are eager to be challenged and corrected. You have a kind of um, disposition of curiosity, a desire to grow. The sign that you're in the house of wisdom is that you are humble enough to see when you're wrong, and you're brave enough, courageous enough to change your course. And therefore, one of the signs of wisdom is a continuous posture of learning, growth, change, so that the people around you should be able to say, you know what, five years ago you were different. And I can see that you're learning and growing and changing and it's beautiful. But folly is the opposite. One of the indicators that you're in the house of folly is that, or actually one of the attractions of the house of folly is that folly will never ask you to change. Folly will make you comfortable. Folly will sedate you just where you are. And that means that, friends, if I do nothing, if I just stay as I am, if I comfort down, if I, if, if I fail to ask people to challenge me, then what will happen is I will find myself in the house of folly by default. Do nothing, and you will be in the house of folly. And therefore, I need to ask a question. Emmanuel? How do you respond when you are challenged and corrected? 
Uh, over the course of my uh, married life, I've recognized that, one, that the times where I've been most angry have been times when Amber has challenged me. It is not because she's critical. She's not. She's kind. But I default to being a fool. On the other hand, in times where I have been able to see my faults, those have been the times where our relationship has flourished and I've grown. How do you respond when you are challenged? Is it immediate defense? Or is it, show me, teach me, I want to learn. Let me understand yet more deeply how I'm broken and how I can change. Now, if you want to live in the house of wisdom, one of the things that means is you need to cultivate relationships that challenge you. You need to be in relationship with people who are willing to look at you and say, hey, can we just, can we just take a break from the insert vivid uh, title for uh, you're faking it there? You, you know, can we just, can we, can, can we take a break from that for a little bit? Because you're being an idiot. And you need, to, you need to reach out to people around you, in your home group, in your Lent prayer group, wherever it is, in your family, and you need to say, don't let me stay a jerk. I want to hear it. All right. Now, that's the household of wisdom. Now let's transition and let's look a little bit more closely at the feast of wisdom. And, and so in your imagination, go back to wisdom's house and sit down at the table and like smell the food, pick up the wine, give it a swirl. I don't know why they do that, but people do that. So, and, and, and give it a sniff. And what is the Feast of Wisdom? You, everybody's going to tell me why you swirl the wine afterwards. But I want you to know, I want to learn. I want to grow. So challenge me. Anyways, um, the question is, what is the core of wisdom? What is it that really makes a person wise? And a lot of people will say, and I've, I've said this a lot, a lot of people will say it's competence, it's skill in life. A wise person is somebody who can live life skillfully, wisely, and navigate through this world because they understand this world clearly. However, what I want to show you is that the feast of wisdom, the core of wisdom, the heart of wisdom, in Proverbs, is not so much knowing the world well, that's part of it. It's primarily knowing God well. Look at verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Fear of the Lord, knowledge of the Holy One. Remember chapter 8, the previous uh, chapter? Um, wisdom, her joy, is being in the presence of the Lord. And now we eat her meal when we are able to enter that same kind of close relationship with God. That's the key to Proverbs. That's the feast of wisdom. Get that relationship with God and you gain wisdom. So, look at verse 10 more closely. There's the fear of the Lord and there's knowledge of the Holy One. Those are two sides of the same coin. Consider both. Fear of the Lord. We're going to talk about this more next week, so I'm going to go quick. The fear of the Lord means, on the one hand, a sense of the danger of disregarding God. Uh, that's part of why in this passage, folly is meant to be scary. This is meant to frighten you. Why? Because fear is good when fear keeps you from things that hurt you. 
So the fear of the Lord is a genuine fear of, of the danger of disregarding the Lord. On the other hand, however, fear, the fear of the Lord, is not a repulsive fear. It's not a fear that makes me want to run away from the Lord. It's a fear that makes me want to attend to him more closely. A quick example, um, I'm a father. Being a father is one of the scariest things in my life. However, the fear of being a father does not make me run away from being a dad. It makes me more attentive to it. Does that make sense? Similarly, with the fear of the Lord. We'll talk about that more next week. It's a sober sense that the Lord's authority is so important that I dare not disregard it. But on the other hand, you have to balance that image with the idea of knowing the Holy One. And knowledge of the Holy One isn't just knowing about the Lord. Knowledge of the Holy One is a personal friendship relationship. Uh, I can't avoid using the word intimacy. It's a close relationship with the Lord. It means that just like wisdom herself can stand before God's presence, look at his beauty, and just be filled with unimaginable delight... So wisdom says, come into that relationship so that you can stand before God in front of all of his holiness and his power and his glory, and we're filled with a joy and a delight, and we're overwhelmed by the fact that this God in all of his perfection still delights to invite us to become his adopted children. Knowing God means that we know something, at least something, of the joy and the delight of being a child in the strong embrace of a father. So the question is, do you know anything of that wisdom? Is that what is animating and sparking and moving your wisdom forward? It's not just worldly wisdom. There's a type of wisdom that's very practical, but that can uh, sedate us and make us feel like we're doing well in life without God. And that is a type of folly. Wisdom is much better because true wisdom brings us to experience and taste the deepest pleasures that we are capable of enjoying, which is knowing the Holy One. So desire that joy. That's the whole point. Desire that joy. Desire that feast. Get hungry for that feast. And if you're hungry for that feast, or if you want to be hungry for that feast, then that leads us inevitably to Jesus Christ. Why does it lead us to Jesus? Well... Did you notice the gospel reading for today? It's a story a lot of us have heard, the prodigal son, right? We've, we've all heard the story about the, the father has two sons. Younger son says, I don't need you, runs away. Older son stays home, does everything right, apparently. Apparently does everything right. That is a story about one son preferring the house of folly. Leaves his father, runs out, falls in for Folly's marketing, right? Bread is, or stolen water is sweet, bread eaten in secret is pleasurable, whatever she said. That is what this kid wants to do, so this kid runs away. But the problem is, Folly's feast for this younger son, it, it, it leaves him hungry. In the end, he's hungry. In fact, he's destitute. And he's sitting there, do you remember the image? He's sitting there looking at the pigs eating, and he goes, I'm envious of the pigs. I want to eat with them because I've got nothing else. Now, here's the interesting thing. In that moment, his destitution, his absolute desperation ends up being a gift. Did you catch that? 
it becomes a gift because it wakes them up. It wakes them up to see the bankruptcy of folly, and it moves them to run out of folly's door and run back to his father's house or the house of wisdom. Why does Jesus tell us this story? Lots of reasons. Here's one. The whole story of Jesus is God himself becoming human and then following us into Folly's house. And he walks into Folly's house and he sees, he knows, he's not fooled, he knows he's walking into a morgue full of dead people. And he walks up to us, dead, in our folly. And he holds us by the hand. And he says, let's trade places. I'll take your place in the morgue. And I'll give you my life. Let's do it. That's what happened on the cross. And so he reaches down and he grabs your hand and he pulls you up and he gives you life and he sends you out across the street to the house of wisdom and he lays down in your place. That's how we get into the house of wisdom. Jesus has to take us there. And if you feel the desperation of your place in the house of folly, then you're blessed. Because what that means is that is Jesus Christ saying, I will take you away from there. Will you consent to my rescue? But on the other hand, if you're here and you do not feel any kind of desperation, <laughs> if, you, if, if you're honest and you just kind of say, I, I think I'm doing fine as it happens. Thank you very much. Well, okay, but can I encourage you to consider the older son in that story? Because the older son... He thinks he's doing just fine. He's played his cards well. He's done everything right, apparently. And yet, if you look at the end of the story, he's outside the feast. He's outside the house. And the father is out there calling him in, but he won't come. And the strange thing is that here, this older son, who apparently he thinks he's done everything right, and yet he is not willing to be challenged by his father. He's, he, he's confident in himself. He won't be challenged. It's a sign that he is self-satisfied in the house of folly. He's outside the feast. And so Jesus tells this story in another, in another, for another purpose, and that is to uncover our subtle, self-satisfied folly. Though the part of our heart that says, I'm living my life adequately well, <laughs> I don't need anything else. And Jesus comes to us and says, no, the only reason you think that is because you haven't tasted the more wonderful and deeper and more pleasurable feast that I have to give you. And I gave my life to give you this feast. Won't you come? Don't be satisfied where you are. Let me challenge you, says Jesus, only because I love you. And I will bring you to a place with pleasure that exceeds your capacity to enjoy them. And you will know life in the house of wisdom and life that never ends. Amen. Hello, everyone. My name is Jim Saladin. I'm the rector here at Emmanuel Anglican Church. Uh, our church exists to see and describe and reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ for the flourishing of our city. And I hope this podcast encouraged you in that way towards Christ. If you're here in New York City, we'd love to see you. Please join us on Sundays at 11 a.m. Generosity drives everything we do at Emmanuel. And if you'd like to contribute, 
please visit www.emmanuelanglicannyc.com give.